Sydney, thank you so, so much for joining me on the Females in Motorsport podcast today. How are you doing? I'm great. And it's great to see you again, too. Yeah, it's great to see you as well. It was so nice meeting you in Portland. It was um, a very interesting race. It was my first Formula E race. And I don't think I've ever seen as that many overtakes ever in my entire life. So it was really cool to see that. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever seen that many like in a race period. So everybody was kind of worried about how the track would race since it's not their traditional um, setup. But I was, I mean, I don't know if everybody else was happy, but I heard from fans that were like, that was the best race I've ever been to. So yeah, it was pretty cool. I have to agree. I know the setup was a little bit different because it's an IndyCar track. So it's more suited to the IndyCar series and the, the way the garages were facing the paddock and not um, towards the circuit which was interesting to me, but I was happy with that because um, I had a media pass so I could see all the garages, which is really cool. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it was, it was, they obviously, um, a friend of mine shared a book called Who Moved My Cheese, which is really fun to read, Mm -hmm. but it was like, everybody was freaking out because there were so many different variables going into the event and everybody was like, ah, I don't know what to do. And it's like, well, just, okay, what are you trying to accomplish? And then let's see if we can get there. And usually you can. You just have to get over that initial panic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I would love to dive into your career a little bit. I have you're the you are the first ever like race steward I have ever met. So that's really, really interesting to me. Um, so I first want to ask you. I mean, how do you become a race steward? Like, this is like the most basic question I could ask. I just want to know, what is the career path to becoming a race steward? And if there's any like skills or specific courses, anything like that, that you need to keep in mind? So full transparency, I didn't know that I wanted to be a race steward. Um, Mm -hmm. When I first set out, um, I wanted to be a driver. Like most people, that's the most visible profession. Um, My dad told me at an early age, I don't own a bank, so um, you're not going to be a professional race car driver, but we'll still let you race. It's just not going to be the, you're not going to be the first woman Mm -hmm. to win the Indy 500. So um, I started out as a um, amateur driver with the Sports Car Club of America here in the US. And I think I went to my first racing school at like 17 and then Um, shortly after graduating college, um, I got roped, I say roped, I kind of like agreed to it. So I don't necessarily know that it's that bad, but, um, I started helping organize races for the Houston region, which was where I lived at the time. And that kind of led me to different opportunities working with pro series, which then in turn gave me the opportunity to move up to Indy and work for SCCA pro racing where I became the um, series manager for the F4 US and FR America's championships. And so through the whole, like I worked at Coda and did F1 and WEC, and I worked with IndyCar for a couple of events in Houston, and just getting that experience of the operational side of things and being in race control, you really kind of see like how things function and move and how rules are applied and why rules exist the way that they do. And so when I got to the F4 and FR championships, their platforms and rules are based on the FIA single seater model. So similarly to F1, but obviously not at the same level. And so that really kind of opened my eyes to like, I was very surprised with how similar the sporting regs are because they use the same template more or less. Mm. Um, So after doing that for, I think it was a year or so, we kind of realized that our, the rules had kind of creeped in a different direction. So we wanted to move back towards that FIA direction um, and effectively like rewrote the rule book. And in doing so, you really learn like there are rules and then there are properly written rules and not every rule can be um, applied and not every rule can like, you can't necessarily enforce them if they're not written properly. So it was really key for us to kind of make sure that what is our intent? What are we trying to do and how do we write this so that it actually can happen? Um, And then in doing all of that, I've 
met people along the way and um, Tim Mayer being one of them who is, he's one of the permanent chairman of the stewards for the F1 and was like, Hey, do you want to be a steward? And I was like, um, I guess (laughs) (laughs) not really. It's never really crossed my mind, but like, if you think I'd be good at it, sure. Haven't done that before. Let's try it. And um, that was going into, I think that was going into 2022. So yeah. Um, my first stewarding opportunity from like a pro race side was, um, with the W series in Miami, which Miami was going to provide itself with some challenges anyway. Um, but it was really a cool experience to work with that series. And it was very similar to F4 and FR because it is a development Mm -hmm. and you have a lot of drivers that don't have a lot of experience. So there's a lot of kind of counseling and coaching that comes with it, which I really do like that aspect. Um, But yeah, I didn't really plan on being here, but here I am. And um, so I was supposed to do the W series at CODA last year as well, but with them not coming, um, I had the opportunity to be a steward trainee in the F1 sessions, which was not expected, but also very cool and a really eye-opening experience of I've heard about all of this in training and now I get to experience yeah. it. So that was pretty cool. Um, but for the, like the average person that doesn't have experience, that's the first thing. So hmm. most of the stewards that I work with, especially on a regional level have started out as drivers. Um, some of them have primarily been like just on the official side because not everybody has the interest to be a driver or can afford it. Um, but having kind of a broad range of skill sets from each specialty and understanding, you know, if you understand what a flagger experiences on a corner, then when you go to look at an incident involving flags or communication from the marshals with a driver, um, it, it really gives you that perspective that you kind of need that Mm. you wouldn't necessarily have, um, most organizations have um, training as far as when you like decide you want to be a steward. Um, the SECA has got a steward and training program that kind of mm. gives you the opportunity to experience all of the different areas. Um, the SECA kind of is the, the definition of a steward for the SECA is a little bit more broad than say like the FIA. And so some of role, some roles that the FIA define in different terms are also considered stewards. So you get like... Interesting. Yeah. So like on the FIA, they call it the clerk of the course, but in SECA, that's an operating steward. So they do the same thing. It's just called something different. So yeah, I was uh, probably in my like mid twenties, mid to late twenties when I got asked, Hey, would you like to join the steward program? And I was like, can I only be an operating steward? <laughs> I don't want to deal with anything else. And they're like, yeah, yeah. it doesn't work that way. It's like, all right, cool. I'm no, sorry. I'll just, I'll just stay race chair. It's no big deal. But, um, but yeah, so it, it varies. And, and just kind of, you can start out working local events at racetracks mm-hmm. you're familiar with and then travel to new racetracks and then do the runoffs, which are the national championships. So there's really like a nice ladder system here in the U.S. for, for people that are interested in doing it. But I mean, just kind of general skills, like communication and being able to talk and to people and not only like talk to them, but like hear them as well and mm. explain, hey, this is why things are happening the way they are. Um, or, you know, hey, yeah, this is this is the interpretation of the rule. I know you think it's this way, but this is the actual. Yeah. So that that's yeah. always a good thing to have as well. That's really interesting. First of all, I feel like you have a very unique experience because you've worked across so many different series. And now obviously you've had experience here as like in F4, but also with Indy and like all that stuff. So that's really cool. And you can actually tell the difference in the way that rules are not just like interpreted, but also like operating steward versus like a different title somewhere else. So that's pretty cool. I do find the interpretations in rule books very interesting. I think this became like a whole new conversation 
when you know Abu Dhabi 2021 when the whole lapping car situation happened and I think that's when I was like oh that's interesting because I think they just had to change the word from any to all and I think that was so so like it's just kind of reminds you of the impact of words yes. and how much that can really just change like a race decision so I feel like for you guys it's so difficult to be able to make sure that you're interpreting the rules correctly and also because you know whoever's watching the race I feel like everybody has an opinion including myself yeah. sometimes be like this is a rubbish decision how dare they do that just because I'm biased yeah. but I mean you guys have arguably the hardest job on the track because it can really impact the decision of a race oh yeah for sure and it's it's funny you mention you know any versus all and there that is the discussion I mean we over the years of of doing writing rules for the sporting regs and stuff there's a lot there's a lot of uh, discussion on may and shall like if we add mm. may in here that gives you the flexibility if you think somebody you know say you're you're writing a rule yeah. where you want to have the ability to penalize somebody but if it's you, you don't necessarily want them to be penalized if it wasn't their fault so using may gives you the option but the problem with may is now you've entered opinion into the situation and then people start screaming consistency and, you know, mm. you ruled this way and, and cited this rule this one time and my son or my daughter, you know, got a three grid place penalty. But then this person got the same, you know, had the same violation of the same rule, but you didn't do anything to him. And it's like, mm. yeah, well, and that's when that communication comes in where, okay, well, this is how it's different and this is why it's different. And that doesn't always resonate, whether it's... Yeah somebody sitting at home on the couch or when you are doing development series, there's a lot of parental conversations <laughs> that you have to deal That's with. That's so interesting. I would never even think that, but yeah, that makes sense because so many of the drivers are so young. Yeah. So it's not like you're just talking to the drivers and like coaching them, but also to give answers to the parents. Cause obviously they want to see their kids do well, but sometimes, you know, yeah. got to play by the rules and yeah. yeah. And I, I've had plenty of conversations with, you know, very upset and irate dads and it's like I'm sorry I will show you the rule but like and I wasn't even a steward for those I was I was in charge of everything and it's like yelling at me is not it's not going to change anything because the stewards are independent of me they're just following the rules that we wrote and this is why this rule exists so it's yeah it's a it's a fun position and then sometimes it's a not fun position so yeah yeah absolutely absolutely I feel like it's also like you know it's a powerful position to be in but it's like you know you're making a very strong impact but sometimes I'm like I don't want to deal with the consequences because you know some people are going to be upset even though the decision you made is correct exactly yeah that's interesting I always think about that for race towards I feel it's so much pressure to like get it right but also make people happy and you just can't do that yeah and I mean there's been extreme circumstances where um fans have not been happy with decisions in the past and um you know there's emails and harsh words and I mean of course you know the internet lets everybody makes everybody think that they're this hero that can hide behind a keyboard. So, um, you know, we had some interesting decisions that we made in um, Portland for Formula E. And, you know, you read, I try not to read too much press about things. Um, There was some stuff after F1 last um, in Austin last year as well. And it's always interesting to see that the journalists take, um, I was a, Mm. I was a journalism major in college. So listening to or reading a story or listening to someone it's like oh wow if only you had all of the all of the you know Mm -hmm. picture even though you've done a really good job there's this component missing that you don't know is missing basically so yeah um, yeah it's always it's always interesting to see I also think, uh, especially when you listen to the commentary, I usually listen to the Sky commentary when I'm watching F1, for example. And it's interesting because I feel like whoever's there will usually, they'll, they'll have an opinion on the decision, but then they'll always like wrap it up by saying, but you know, the stewards have all the camera angles that we don't. Yeah. Which I find very, very reassuring because it's like, that's true. Actually, sometimes the decisions might not make sense to us because we don't have access to all the resources that you guys have. So... You can be unhappy about it, but you know. And it's 
it's an informed decision. Absolutely. And and it's one of the one of the sessions that they have had for I, I know with the FIA training and I've also seen it with the SCCA is how deceiving video can be. And looking mm-hmm. at it from one angle, you see one thing. Um, when we were in Portland, it was the same, it was the same deal. We had CCTV coverage, we had broadcast coverage, but we didn't have an in-car. And when we watched the mm-hmm. in-car, we're like, oh, well, that completely I mean, I don't mm-hmm. think it it didn't change our overall opinion of the incident as a whole, but it definitely shifted um it, like it shifts your perspective of like, well, this we, we think this is a racing incident, but we want to confirm. And then we see it's a racing mm-hmm. incident and we're like, oh, well, now it's a hundred percent a racing incident because this also happened that we hadn't seen before. So yes, the extra angles help and sometimes they hurt. And you know, there's been plenty of times I remember years ago, I don't remember what series it was, they were racing at Coda, but um they were using the CCTV from the track as well as the broadcast coverage. And they watched an incident multiple times, made a judgment. Somebody had to do a drive through penalty and it basically killed their chances of winning the championship. Mm-hmm. And then I happened to be friends with one of the drivers on Facebook. And when he posted the video, it was like, it looked as though he had made a, his hands had moved and the car was turning into mm-hmm. another one. His hands never moved. And so whether he hit a bump, whether the other car, like it just, it was the perfect storm of bad camera angles. And in reality, that shouldn't have happened. He shouldn't have had a drive through, but it happened. And so we're human. We make mistakes and sometimes it sucks worse than it normally does. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's interesting because especially when um you know that of course there's there's another person on the side there's a driver there's obviously a team there's a lot of investment there and everything but i think at the end of the day everybody just wants a good safe race like no one is really out to get each other there's no like personal vendettas or anything and i think that's what we need to keep in mind that of course even if there are errors it's not it's nothing personal it's nothing intentional exactly which is where you know um, I feel like the objectivity plays such an important role. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious because I know you've worked across so many different series, which some of them have way more action, like a Formula E versus some may have few. Does that affect your typical race weekend? Um, not really, because you pretty much go into each weekend with more or less a similar approach. Um, for me, it starts even before you get to the track. So whether it's um, getting the pertinent series documents like sporting regulations or um, previous memos that still apply, or even looking at decisions from previous events so that you can kind of continue with the consistency that previous stewards um, have been using throughout the uh, series. Um, And then of course the schedule to see like, when do I actually need to be there? (laughs) What am I responsible for? Um, So kind of doing a little bit of prep work ahead of time and then making sure you connect with whoever the person is that's in charge. So sometimes that's an organizer. Sometimes that's the chairman of the stewards. It just depends. Um, But then once you're on site, it's, you know, who are you working with? Where are you working? Where's the bathroom? Because that's always an important thing. And in some cases (laughs) can be difficult to find if uh, you're in like a temporary street circuit type thing. Mm. Um, that was like in Brooklyn. I I went to Brooklyn Mm. like three times for Formula E in various different roles. And each time the bathroom moved and I was like, okay, where is it now? Because depending on the schedule, like you have five minutes and it's like all the way down, you know, one end. Well, I should say, where's the nice bathroom? Like there's always the porta can, but sometimes you don't want to do that. Um, No, no. As, as women, like, no. (laughs) Well, and like, you have to get completely undressed and Right. wearing a white shirt. I don't want my clothes touching <laughs> the floor and like yeah, yeah exactly I know I, I, I feel yeah like. um but once we're there like when sessions start it's it's fairly similar um depending on what the series provides I've been with like local series that have CCTV and broadcast um 
as well as I did a nitro cross race in Oklahoma back in June and they have, um, they had a drone follow the cars around, which is a really unique perspective that I hadn't had before. So that's cool. But like, if you're working with a development series, like when we were with um, the W series, so we had the CCTV from Miami, but it was in race control. And then our room was a ways away. Um, so anything that we would need, we had to get before we left. And then we would have to look at the in-car camera. Um, and we didn't have a broadcast mm. available to us. Mm. So it kind of depends the series that don't have broadcast and CCTV and all of those things. Most of the time, those are kind of post-race decisions as opposed to doing them in the moment and making live calls. Um, mainly because you don't want to have like that other previous race I had mentioned where you make somebody do a drive through and you're like, Oh, we got that wrong. So we try to avoid that when we don't have the ability mm -hmm. to have all of that. Um, <clears throat> and then afterwards, it just depends on the level of, you know, how many things you have to investigate and look at with the W series. There are a couple of things that the race director had given us that we watched and were like, yeah, it's nothing. It's just a racing incident. So you don't do anything. Um, kind of a fun note when you see something like come across the screen during F1, if it says noted, that means the stewards will look at it and the race director are going to look at it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get a full decision out of it. If something's under investigation, it's typically um, it, they have an indication that there's something serious enough to move forward. Mm. So then investigation means you have to have a hearing and then go forward. So um, in the FIA, hearings include all of the parties involved. So both drivers or both teams, depending on uh, the incident. But then in other local series, um, sometimes you just interview one party at a time. So it just kind of, it really depends on what their protocols are. Um, I like having everybody in the room because I feel like it's a better conversation and you have the ability to paint the picture better instead of hearing one person's perspective and then hearing someone else's and you're like, well, wait a second. And then you have to go back to the other one. And so it's this like ping pong effect when you can just get everybody in the same room. Now, if everybody's angry at each other, that's not always <laughs> the greatest of things, but. I was just gonna say, I find that so interesting because in stewards rooms, I always wonder when there's like two teams that are like fighting over the penalty, I would just, I would love to see that. Yeah. I would just love to see them like go at it. Like, is it just like a situation where they're just like yelling at each other? I have not seen that. I, I do know that that's okay. happened before. Um, there are some passionate people and that are emotional, like just on the onset. So um, I, I was in a uh, hearing that involved a driver switching teams and mm -hmm. the two, the, the team he was switching to was the other team. And he was like, eh, it's no big deal. And they're like, well, of the, the team that he was with yeah. was like, well, of course you're saying that. <laughs> like you're going over there next year. <laughs> so it was one of those like, what do you like? How do you really feel though? So it, it's, it's always, it, it never, there's, it's always a surprise and it never, um, we had in Portland, we had a team manager come in and was like, I don't care if you read them the riot act and yell at them. And he was like, I mean, obviously please don't disqualify us, but like, I am so pissed right now. I could, like, I've already yelled at him. So mm. it's you, you really see kind of the gamut of emotions. Yeah. That's so interesting. I can see that someone is like, yeah, I've already yelled at him. So if you want to do it again, yeah. go for it. But you know, it's covered. Yeah. And then, Obviously, when you're dealing with younger drivers, there is different emotions involved in different. Um, mm. I, we had early, I think it was the first year that I was with F4 and FR. We threw a red flag and like, I don't know, of the 25, 30 drivers we had, like all but five missed the red flag and were like still racing at speed and didn't come into the pits and all <laughs> And so I told the race director at the time, I was like, just walk up to the front and say you're disappointed. And he's like, what? And I was like, I guarantee you that word will have more of an effect than saying you're pissed or whatever. 
And he did. And like the entire room hung their heads and everyone felt ashamed. And it was mm-hmm. like, oh, I have failed. And so if you say that to an adult, it doesn't necessarily land the same way <laughs> as you would yeah. with, you know, a teenager. So you kind of have to read the room and see like, what is the most effective form of communication? And yeah, I am all for public shaming when within reason, obviously, but using people as examples of what is right and what is wrong really brings it home to kind of be like, here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. And those people are the same people you race with on the racetrack. And so the level of respect, you know, goes up or down based on Mm -hmm. how you treat others. So. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that you say that because I was actually chatting with um, a race director a few weeks ago and she was telling me something very similar where she was saying that with development drivers, you have to kind of coach them, but you also have to kind of read their personalities and how they will learn. Everybody learns so differently. Like somebody responds to... um, like more like positive reinforcement. Somebody really responds with saying things like, you know, like if you do it, if you do it this way, this, you know, it's not going to land or you have to like change your approach like give them more of an educational um, feedback. But some people just don't respond to anything. They have, you, you just have to like, you know, let them kind of learn on their own yeah. and just give them the penalty and then just like, you know, let them run with it because everybody has a very different technique to actually learn things and obviously with development drivers we want them to be the best but they're teenagers that's when you know it's hard yeah. like I remember myself as a teenager I was definitely not the most cooperative person yeah. so I can I can see that that would be very difficult and she was also telling me one more one more very interesting thing when she said that because she is very young when she would um be the race director at a race where there were older drivers they would be like, you know, I have been racing far longer than you have been born. Yes. And it's, it is like something that I do, I wouldn't say sympathize with, but I get it. I'm like, okay, I can see that. I can see that it being like, you know, no, I've done this for so many years. Like, why are you telling me not to do it now? But, you know, she's still the race director. She still has the title and the responsibility and the leadership. So you have to respect that. Yeah. I think growing up in the sport, especially, um, and as I, I mean, I think I started as a race chair at like 20 or 21. And so most of the people that I interacted with were older. Um, and a lot of times there were people questioning, like, why are you doing things this way? And I'm like, well, why not? Like, <laughs> okay, we haven't done it before. Let's see if it works. <laughs> if it doesn't, that's fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I, I've, I've felt the ageism a lot more than mm-hmm. I have as far like, or discrimination, I would say, as far as um, just through my career, or if it was, you know, gender discrimination, I just didn't care and didn't pay attention to it. I mean, it was, it wasn't something growing up that I was ever held back on. Like my parents never made a big deal that I was a girl who liked racing. I mean, I wore boy shoes because they had cars on them, but I liked cars. So who cares? You know, like they still come in the same size. You just, they look different. So having that kind of experience growing up, I don't, if I, if I was discriminated, I don't know that I necessarily recognized it when I was younger, which is probably a good thing. Um, yeah. I mean, I've, I've felt it as I've gotten older and recognized it and I expect it because that's just, it is, what it is. Yeah, there's definitely microaggressions that you know yeah. you'll pick up on, and it's just not stuff that you can really you know ponder too much about for your own mental health. Yeah, no, I mean it. Do, I don't let it bother me. And and when I was younger, I worked at a racetrack, and I used to do thrill rides as part of a. We had a race car that we would take people around in, and when people were like, "Oh, you're driving," I was like, "Yes," and now you're going to regret that statement. Like, I wouldn't say it out loud, but I would drive a little harder than I normally had. And most people were like, "I am so sorry. I thought that this was going to suck because you're a girl, and I will never feel that way again about anybody." Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Cool, I did my job." So, um, yeah. But I think there's definitely that age factor, and I've I felt it a little bit, and I think subconsciously I feel it often. Um, It's one of the things that I know 
the FIA has initiatives as well as most um, racing organizations with, you know, bringing more women involved and getting them, you know, into roles that are traditionally held by women. And one of the biggest things and biggest concerns for me, which might be a minority opinion, is like, I don't want to be somewhere just because I'm a girl or because I'm female. I would like to be there because I've earned my right to be there um, because I've checked the boxes because I've done the training because I've done the events. And if I'm not, if I'm just given the spot because, hey, we need the token female, like for me, I'm going to be self-conscious the whole weekend. Like, do I deserve to be here? Do I know what I'm supposed to know? And are people treating me differently because I was put here, you know, rather than Mm -hmm. are they respecting me because of my experience? So I think it's one of those like fine lines you have to navigate but at the same time like you've got to take stuff with a grain of salt and you've got to be able to have thicker skin especially as a steward um Mm. but yeah I mean I think that there's there's going to be a little bit of that um but overall I mean I think I've been very welcomed with every role that I've been in even when I felt completely (laughs) underprepared for certain things yeah (laughs) um which is always good but um but I kind of, I think I've, I mean, I've, I've had some fantastic mentors over the years that have, you know, instilled in me the, the self-confidence to just kind of like when Tim made that phone call, like, do you want to do it? Uh, sure. Why not? You know, so it's definitely. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Good. That's really cool. Um, when you're in a room full of stewards or, you know, just um, when you see other stewards or in your experience, like largely speaking, do you feel like there's a discrepancy in the number of men stewards versus women stewards or is it more or less the same? Um, I think on a local, like regional level, there's usually a pretty, pretty good mix. Um, a lot of it is, you know, I, I'll have to check and um, I know that, the SCCA runoffs have a significantly large number of stewards compared to a normal event. Mm. Cause it is, I think it's 26 classes that race or 28 classes. Mm. So you've got people that are operating people that are doing, you know, the decisions after the fact and that kind of thing. So they, they split the workload up, but I would, I mean, I know a lot of female stewards that attend and I, could there be more? Sure. Um, mm there's a lot more female representation in some of the other specialties. And I think that just kind of knowing that, Hey, this is how you get to where your these other women are helps. Um, looking back when I was doing, I went to Geneva one year for the FIA training and I, I don't know that I necessarily, I don't want to say I expected to walk into a room full of guys, but I expected mm-hmm. to walk into a room full of guys mostly. And I was pleasantly mm-hmm. surprised with the number of women that were in there. Now the ratio is considerably larger male to female, but um, I, I, I don't know. I guess I just kind of have you, I've been used to seeing more men than women. Yeah. And so to see the numbers of women was kind of, was good. But I think I like that. I think I think yeah. obviously there's there's still room for improvement. Um, but there's there's definitely a shift, I think, in most mm-hmm. major racing organizations to yeah. being more female forward and more um, you know, there is more I mean, I I always tell people and I I never, you know, I remember Lynn St. James racing in the Indy five hundred. I never would dream of being an F1 driver because I don't, I never saw a female driver when I was, at least when I was young. So I didn't necessarily think that that was obtainable, but I also didn't realize that 90% of the roles in racing, or I didn't realize that of the roles that exist in racing, like you don't see 90% of them. You see drivers. Sometimes you see race directors, you hear about stewards and then there's like crew people but then there's everybody else that's behind the scenes. And that's like where my, most of my professional background from an operations side, like that's what I really enjoy doing and was pleasantly surprised to find as I 
furthered my racing career, um, that that existed. And I was like, well, hey, if I'd known this from the beginning, I probably wouldn't have even cared about driving. So Mm. I think just in general, kind of being transparent on, you know, what roles exist. And I know y'all, I think y'all did a series of like recognizing um, Mm -hmm. specifically females in F1 and drivers and things like that. And it was cool to see, you know, just how far the representation goes. But I think a lot of times like the officials and stuff you don't see because there's not Mm -mm. a lot of um, representation from them because they're kind of behind the scenes and, you know, you're, you're not supposed to stand out, which, you know, is good and bad. (laughs) So um, one of the things that I'm currently doing with the SECA is um, working with driver or I'm sorry, volunteer recruitment. And so trying to get new, new life and new blood in as volunteers because the the forces are aging and you know we're having more and more events in the US and professional events that is and so you've got this this need and this desire for people and interest so how do we how do we funnel them in and how do we make these roles available and so that's one of the things I'm going to I'm hoping to work on this fall with you know some of our local volunteers at the runoffs and things like that is to say, Hey, this is what grid does. This is what a steward does. This is what all of these different specialties do. And you can be involved in racing as well. Not necessarily in the traditional visible roles that are always, you know, published. Yeah. That's really, really cool. I would honestly, if I was, you know, a teenager, I would absolutely love to be a part of something like that because I do think that there is this, you know, because most of the drivers, whether it's F1 or Indy, they're men. And I think there is this, um, there is this assumption, which is not entirely untrue, that it is more of a sport that's dominated by men in most of those kinds of roles. But I think just seeing more women do other things like stewardship or race directors or media marketing um race strategy all those things make such a huge difference because it does show that a like driver path is you know not for everybody and not even it doesn't have to be for you either i i got into racing and f1 like very very recently but i think even if i got into it at a young age i don't think driving would have ever interested me i also like i'm a terrible driver (laughs) so that i just knew i just no there's no way so i would always want to gravitate more towards an operational role or like a media role or something like that so i do think there is there are many women there and that's really interesting for me to see being new in the sport that there are so many people that you can still speak to and learn from and can still be inspiring for people who just they don't want to be drivers they want to be something else so that's really, really great. And this volunteership sounds really cool. Yeah, it it's that's how I um, I laugh because now that I know about insurance coverage and events and all of the <laughs> all of the nitty gritty stuff, um, I I always hate telling the story. I, I used to grid cars when I was like six years old because I could read numbers on a piece of paper and I knew who all the people were for my dad's race group. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was always it was always fun to be able to to be a part of it and and be somebody who mm-hmm. contributed towards making the event happen and not necessarily yeah. realize you know you don't realize that these people um, ex- I, I don't want to say exist like I, I feel like there's been a push recently where there's a lot of recognition for volunteers and officials and and an understanding that these these things don't happen without an army of people and you know a lot of those those folks are are giving of their time and hard-earned money and you know personal time off from work to to go Mm -hmm. effectively play and have a vacation that is a non-traditional vacation to some of their coworkers. Yeah. um but yeah it's 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 a really fun opportunity to get a completely different perspective on motorsports. Yeah, I love that. I also feel like I kind of do that. I have a full-time job that's not in racing and I take time off work. Like when I came to Portland, I took time off work to come and just, you know, 
see the race and thankfully had a media pass so that was really really cool for me to be able to see the paddock and everything and i think it gives you a really interesting perspective when you're in the grounds or within the trenches of what's happening i mean obviously that's how we connected and i ended up meeting so many other people who worked in formula e as well and they're able to share their perspectives but also just seeing the way that everything operates and really comes together it gives you an idea of the scale of the event as a fan of course you get to see the number of people which is also like an electric experience on its own right but being in a paddock it really changes your perspective on how insanely massive these race events are yeah. and like how many people it takes to really put it together it takes more than a village so um yeah i think that's a really interesting um and really exciting opportunity for anybody who's able to do that yeah and and the scale you know i was involved with a couple of indycar events before um i did a like a WEC event and then and then i did an f1 event i was like oh okay wow <laughs> like and that was you know that was like back in 2015 and then i look at you know the events at you know, the f1 event at coda now is has grown tremendously mm-hmm. from even then. So it's it's yeah. pretty crazy to see how, like you said, it's more than just a village. It's like a village and the three next to it. And then you yeah. fly in another one too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The scale of F1 events is, um, yeah, it's really crazy. When I was in Coda for a media event, I met um, Alicia and she was telling me about how much the um, the audience has grown at Coda. And between all the three races that we're going to have in the US, if someone wanted me to pick one, I would always pick Coda. Even though I, Miami was my first one, um, it was a very last minute like decision. I was always very hypercritical about Miami. <laughs> I always, I think I always said it on the podcast before I went to Miami that, oh, I would never go to Miami. Yeah. So expensive. And then I literally went back like, two weeks later. But... It was a really great experience, but I'm really, really excited about Coda this year because obviously there's going to be F1 Academy there as well, which is something I'm following very closely. But everybody, even who lives you know, in Europe and has seen all the European races, always says that the show that Coda puts on is completely, um, you just can't compare it. Yeah. I, so f- several years, F4 US ran with um, Formula One at Coda. And... Mm. Uh, I think 2021 was the last year we d- they did. And I was in the start stand to tap Christian on the shoulder to push the button to start the lights. Um, and I remember looking up into this the hill on turn one and I was like, damn, this is what the hill used to look like, like for Formula One races a few like pre-COVID and, you know, mm. probably 2016, 2017. Um and to see that, I, I don't remember, I guess that was, that was Sunday morning for, it was like an eight or 9am. We were the first race of the day. Um, but the hill's half full. And by the end of the race, the hill was completely full. And it was like, wow, the kids had this amazing opportunity to race in front of so many people. And, you know, it, it's just, it keeps growing. And I love Alicia and her team and they do a fantastic job. And, Mm-hmm. Um, I miss working with them. I, I used to, I wasn't with her team. I was with the, the, mo- the operation side. So the track side stuff, but seeing what, what they do, you know, in the paddock and how it, I mean, I've, it's really fun to go to trace tracks when there's not an event because you're like, wait a second, yeah. this place is massive. <laughs> and but yes. then it feels even more massive when you fill it up with stuff. Um, the first time that we ever went to Indianapolis Motor Speedway was, um, in 2017 for the SECA runoffs. And I remember like we had parked outside and rode our bikes in and I was like, wow, this place, this place is huge. Like they're not lying when they say (laughs) how big it is. And then we moved up to Indy like six months later and we went to our first 500, um, that following May (laughs) and we walked in and we're like, oh, Oh wow! Like we had no idea of the scale because this this gigantic facility is now filled with a ridiculous amount of people, (laughs) and so it really is cool to be, you know, feel that atmosphere and 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 be in the middle of it. Um, 
my like Miami is a different animal. It's 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 how do I phrase this? <laughs> Miami is fun because the atmosphere is completely different. You get that kind of street course feel, but you still get the mm-hmm. the vibe of being at a racetrack. Um, I'm interested to see how Vegas goes. Um, yeah, interested is, is the key word. <laughs> I, I think I think that it's going to pose like I'm looking at it from like the operational side. I have several friends that are involved um, that I've worked with over the years and just like the the track logistics and all that is involved has been um, it's been really interesting listening to their conversations about some of the things. And it's like, yeah, good luck with that. Like, yeah, I'm trying so hard not to laugh. <laughs> I know. I've heard a few few things as well that it it looks like very very challenging. I do think it's a really interesting project though. Um, Vegas has always been known to be this you know aspirational track and city. So many drivers have always said that they really want to race in Vegas. So I feel like it's one of those like places. Um, it is interesting. I I don't know. I just I feel like I was always so critical about Miami, but I honestly had a great time in Miami. I'm not. I can't even like. I wish I could like be like. No, I was right. I was wrong. It was a good time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe Vegas will just, you know, be this insane um, event that it's supposed to be. Um, and it's and especially because F1 is, you know, doing it themselves. They're pouring in all this money. Um, the only thing that I have, like, major beef with is how expensive it is to go as a fan. Yeah. But, I mean, that's just that's just the way F1 goes. So Yeah, it. I, I do wish that the, the price point was a little bit more obtainable. Um, so that everybody could experience it. Um, I will say for the, for the ones that feel left out that they haven't gone to Miami or, or can't go to Vegas, they are street courses. So like, there's not a lot to see, you know, anyway, because you, you know, you have kind of this small section of the racetrack to look at. Whereas when you go to Coda, you could, you know, you could sit in, turn 15 and see them come into turn 12 in that whole stadium section. Um, yeah. So that's, or like, I love GA tickets at Coda because you can walk around and go get various different perspectives. So um, I'm with you. If you're going to go to your race, yeah. go to Coda. And then, yeah, I mean, if I had all the money in the world, some of the, I, I will say that some of the paddock club opportunities <laughs> look pretty sweet. Um Pretty cool. But I'm not mortgaging my house to do that. So. No, absolutely not. Absolutely. I, I don't even own a house. That's yeah. not even an option for me. But yeah, I would say that, yeah, I feel like a paddock club and stuff is definitely cool. I know a friend who went as a content creator. She had the opportunity to be sponsored by a brand, which is amazing. Like absolutely so cool for them to even invite her. And she had the best time. But to pay for it yourself and then, you know, it is insanely expensive i mean some people do you know people who are like hardcore race fans i have a friend who did like a champions club um experience in barcelona and she said it was worth every penny but she wouldn't do yeah. it again because she's like i saved up for it it was great i saw some really amazing drivers got to see some events had some incredible champagne but i wouldn't do it again because i had to save a lot of money for that and now the experience yeah. is done i would i don't need to do it again um i think miami also what was interesting to me is that I was in GA for the final race day because someone was able to give me tickets. And I was like, okay, then why would I spend money and buy grandson yeah. tickets? And GA to me in Miami, personally, was I would not spend money on that. I would rather spend a little bit more if I'm able to and do grandstand because like you said, it's very hard to keep up with what's actually happening. I had to um, take out my phone and listen to the commentary on my phone because you can't hear anything. There's no sound where I was standing in GA. And um, they also block a lot of the the circuit gates with like um, with branding. Yeah. So it's not like it's it's you can, it's transparent and you can see in the circuit. So that was a little bit disappointing. So, yeah, it was a great experience. I, I did want to go as a fan to my first ever race. So I'm really happy that I got to do that. I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Yeah, do yeah. No, I've, I totally get that. I think there's, there's yeah. certain places that having a GA ticket makes sense. And usually a street circuit is not. I wish promoters mm-hmm. would, would think a little bit more about that yeah. fan experience and have, you know, even if it's, you don't have to, spend money on 
a grandstand that's a GA grandstand, but you could have, you know, like a platform that is narrow and elevates people so that they can actually see above yeah. the signage while also staying far enough away that the safety, right. <laughs> the safety aspect yeah. is yeah. still maintained. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. but yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that um, the interesting part about racing from a promoter's perspective is, and I think Coda has done a really good job of figuring out like what motivates people to come and, and what, you know, they've, they've added grandstands year after year. I mean, they're temporary, they get put up and then taken right back down because Mm -hmm. that's the only, you know, super major event they have. But, you know, the fan experience has evolved so much of what they provide, you know, everybody, whether you're GA or not. Um, And I think that that's, that's really key. I mean, they've, when they announced bringing in concerts, there are a lot of people, especially like the Mm -hmm. diehard race fans that were like, what is this? I'm like, this is so you can Mm -hmm. keep watching a race year after year, (laughs) because this is going to bring in the wives or the, you know, the kids or who your neighbor who likes this particular artist, but isn't necessarily a race fan. You know, I had, I had countless people like when Taylor Swift was playing, Hey, can you give me tickets? I'm like, okay. I mean, I understand that like 30 of you want to go, but I don't get 30 free tickets. So yeah. um, Yeah. But they would have, they wouldn't have gone otherwise. And so, you know, after the fact, the people that I, I did, wrangle tickets for were like I had no idea that the race would be you know the racing would be that exciting or you know we really enjoyed Mm -hmm. kind of being able to walk around and see different different perspectives so it really kind of opens the door for those casual fans to come and experience something and potentially turn them into you know long-term fans um but yeah I mean I think that that's one of the things that um I know from a Marshall perspective, uh, your Marshall Tabard would get you into the concerts at Coda. And I hope that doesn't change. Um, because in Miami, all of the concerts were also ticketed. So they didn't, they didn't have the opportunity to go and experience that, which is, you know, kind of a bummer because a, you've, you're used to it by volunteering at Coda. Also you're volunteering. So it's just yet another thing that you can reward and thank, the volunteers for having them included in, in those perks. But um, I think Vegas will be interesting simply because it's just F1 and hot laps. Like there's no yeah. support series and just, I mean, logistically, I think that's all they can do. Um, even, you know, from mm-hmm. a, from a paddock standpoint, there isn't a support paddock. Um, so they would have to find the land or space or whatever to make that happen. Um, and also the time with what, with how they're doing the the schedule. Yeah. So I, I think that might be a difficult sell after year one. I think there'll be a lot of people there because they want to be there for year one, but it'll be interesting to see what they do for that fan experience going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's what people even said about Miami, that let's see how, you know, year one is going to be like the one to attend. And I think year one was really, really exciting because it was the second race in the US and having like a totally different new circuit. So that was a really um, exciting opportunity for anybody, who, especially who lives in Florida, it's closer um, to that area. But I think as the years have gone by, this was Miami's second one, yeah. right? In 2023. I think this one was definitely a little bit cheaper, a little bit better organized. I actually had no complaints about the organization. I was there with a friend who was a serial like race attender. And she was like very, very pleasantly surprised at how well the transportation and everything was organized. Because she's been to racetracks like Monza, where she's like, it's an absolute mess. It is... It is crazy. First, the number of people that are there, they're obviously like selling, like they're selling out the tickets, but they just don't have the facilities to actually um, service them. Yeah, yeah. So from that perspective, I feel like Miami did a great job, but that was also my first one. So 
I mean, I was expecting like Monza level <laughs> chaos. So maybe that's why my opinion might be well, skewed. That's, that's the way um, you should go into it. Like expect the worst. And then yeah. yeah you expect chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. We are now here at my favorite segment of the podcast, which we call the rapid fire round, where I ask you three questions, just answer them, whatever comes to your mind. Um, and then we move on to the next one. All right. All right, are you yes. ready? Okay, awesome. Question number one. What is the one thing you love about being a steward? I would say working with drivers and teams. So you get like an inside view of what they're thinking, um, especially in some difficult situations. But, you know, especially in the development series, you can you can help them learn from their mistakes and show them that, you know, yes, you've screwed up here, but here's a couple of solutions to prevent that in the future, but just having that interaction and kind of, you know, it, seeing how their, their brain works compared to a steward's yeah. brain. Yeah. I love that. All right. Question number two, what do you hate about being a steward? Uh, <laughs> probably interpreting like poorly written rules or difficult mm. rules. Like life would be so much better if it was black and white, but then we would need stewards. So it's kind of like, okay. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, looking at a rule and going, you know, or, or being in kind of that difficult situation, like going back to that may or shall, you know, if, if the rule says X, Y, Z, and you have to do that and you feel bad about it because it really doesn't necessarily warrant it, you still got to do it because that's what the rule says. So yeah. That that's yeah. that's always not pleasant. Yeah, it's definitely tough. I don't think I'll be able to do that. I'll just be like, no, okay, I'm sorry, <laughs> let's not do that. <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to do it. Um, all right, last question. And I know I'm asking you specifically because I know you're like an avid race fan and have been for years now, your entire life. So what is your favorite number one race memory? Ooh. Let's see. Can I can I do two but qualify it? Okay. Yes, absolutely. So I would say as a driver, um, this is how illustrious my career was, but I won one race <laughs> and the one race that I won, um, I will, I will always remember hopping out of the car and hugging my dad afterward. Cause that was, I had finally done it. Um, so that was super cool. And then as an official, that's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Um, as an official, I would say, Probably what year that would have been 2013. It was the first year that IndyCar came back to Houston. Um, we were racing around the Astrodome and Reliant Center in our whatever it's called now. I think it's Energy. Um, but to make a long story short, um, the track had shifted. Like there, it's a concrete parking lot, but some of the big concrete plates had shifted. And so we were launching cars in the air unintentionally. And um, that was the first time that I was ever like, hey, I'm going to go fix this. You're in charge. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like, they, <laughs> they call for me. Like, you just answer. And I was like, and do what? <laughs> like, he's like, whatever. And he just like walked off. This is my boss for the weekend. And I, I just remember going like, okay. And um I, I like, I didn't know he had to go grind the track and fix it and do whatever. And I don't really know. That was like Friday afternoon, I think midday, maybe. I don't know what happened between that point and like Sunday when we raced or yeah, I think it was that a double header. Anyway, first race, the cars are coming around. We're like, we're in the apex of turn two and we start the race and they all go by. And I was just like, how did we get here? Like, are we, this is actually a race. We did this. Um, so it was really, it was one of those, like, I don't know that I've ever felt that pure accomplishment ever. <laughs> and I mean, I didn't really, yeah. I mean, I know I was, I was a contributor. I didn't like actually fix things by myself, but like being able to say we went from this to this and it happened was awesome. So that's awesome. Like that visual, 
um, validation of like, yeah, I did my job and it, it was perfect. Everything went great. Is like, it's really, um, it's like unexplainable actually. Like that feeling yeah. that you get like, yes, like I did something fabulous and like, it might not even be something that like, you know, you might get actual, um, um, like people might not notice it. People yeah. might not know that you even did this, but you know you did, and that's exactly enough. yeah. It was yeah, and I think that was probably a turning point, like in my career of okay, like when people tell you that they have faith in you, like have faith in yourself too, because obviously, mm-hmm. if they trust you enough to do it, then you can, and if you can't, then fake it till you get there. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, what a great way to end the podcast. I love that. This has never like fallen more perfectly <laughs> together. Thank you so, so much, Sydney, for joining me today. What a, what a really fun conversation. I feel like I learned so much from awesome. you. I enjoyed it myself. It was, it was a pleasure. 